Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. In March of 2023, a homecoming was announced. Developing news after more than 50 years, Tokate, the oldest southern resident killer whale still in captivity, may be coming home. I'm very happy to be here for this historic announcement to begin the process to return Toki to her home waters. Support for Tokate's return to Washington has come from indigenous communities around the world. Jackmish people are here. After five decades of captivity at the Miami Seaquarium, Tokatai would be coming home to the Salish Sea. But the process to bring Toki back was cut short. She died just a few months later, in August. Her passing was a devastating blow to the conservation advocates and fans who had demanded Tokatai's freedom. And as Washington Post reporter Caitlin Gibson explored in her story, The Call of Tokatai, what followed was a moment of reckoning. The hopeful symbolism of her rescue was gone, replaced by searching questions about the past and future of our relationship with her species and the natural world we share. In life, Tokatai was a beloved but involuntary ambassador for her kind. In death, she had become something more, a parable and a guide, revealing the full spectrum of our human potential to ruin and to repair. Caitlin Gibson is a features writer at The Washington Post who recently reported on Tokatai's life, death, and legacy. Caitlin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you write in the story that Tokatai's life was shaped by an extensive constellation of people drawn into her orbit. What kind of voices did you track down to try to piece together Tokatai's life for this? I really wanted to speak with people who had known her across the entirety of her journey, which meant that I spoke with the man who was there when she came out of the water. Um, I spoke with someone who was there on the day of her capture, Dr. Terrell Newby. I spoke with trainers who cared for her while she was at the Miami Seaquarium. I spoke with um, an author, Sandra Pollard, who wrote a book about her captivity and had done extensive research into her time, especially those early days when she was at the Seaquarium. I spoke with activists who'd been fighting for her since 1995, the people of the indigenous Lummi Nation in the Pacific Northwest who became really involved in 2017 and fighting for her. People at the Whale Sanctuary Project, people with Friends of Toki, the team that ultimately assembled to help get her out of there, um, which unfortunately did not come to pass, but they were the ones who were working so hard to bring her home. I spoke with Jim Ursay, the billionaire owner of the Indianapolis Colts, who was the one who ultimately decided to finance her journey to freedom. So really everyone who I could find who had had some kind of meaningful encounter with her from the very beginning when she came out of the water to the people who were in the pool with her when she died to the Lummi matriarch who was the one who put her ashes back into the water after she was returned home to Puget Sound. One of those sources that you spoke with was Terrell C. Newby, who was then a student of marine biology, uh, and he was at Penn Cove the day Tokatai was captured. What did he tell you about the experience of that day and his experience over time with Tokatai? 
his experience that day was really profound. You know, he arrived there. He was a young student of marine biology. He didn't have his degree yet, but he was fascinated by orcas and not much was known about them at all at that time. In fact, at that time, they were really feared. A lot of the animals that were pulled out of those waters and those first captures had bullet holes in them from fishermen. Um, so it was this kind of exciting and thrilling opportunity for him to see them up close. At least that's how he kind of went into it. And his job that day was to sit in a in a pram and to keep the frightened mother orcas away from the calves that they were trying to round up and pull out of the water. And it was a really disturbing scene. And what he told me is that as he was watching this capture unfold, he began to become more and more distraught by what he was seeing and the obvious terror and the panic and the distress of the orcas as they were being separated from one another and as the calves were being taken out of the water. He told me that he, at that time, was a Vietnam veteran who had been home from the war for less than two years. And when he actually rode with Tokatai down from Whidbey Island down to Seattle, he sat with her in the back of this flatbed truck and was looking into her eye the whole way down. And when he described that to me, it was really pretty overwhelming and, and emotional because he was talking about how he was having these flashbacks almost to his time in Vietnam and some of the horror that he saw there. And he was just having really potent echoes of that same feeling of, of trauma and separation and what her fear and her disorientation must have been in that moment. That was August of 1970. Tokatai and her brothers and sisters were among the 50 southern resident orcas taken from the Pacific Northwest during the 60s and 70s. Where would they end up? What would happen to them after they were captured? They were sold to marine parks all around the world for display and for entertainment. And most of them didn't survive more than a year, a couple of years past the time they were captured. So Tokatai was pretty unique in that she endured for decade after decade. But that was not typical of the whales that were captured. How were business owners like the owner of the Seattle Marine Aquarium able to get away with capturing animals in this way? It sounds like a really harrowing and devastating kind of event, uh, certainly the effect on the pod. It, was this just allowed in the 70s? Yes. Yeah, so at that time, it, the, this was prior to the passage of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972. So at that time, it actually was legal to round up these wild animals and to sell them in this way. And then even after the Marine Mammal Protection Act was passed, SeaWorld was granted granted an exemption because there was this idea that by capturing them that they were serving some sort of educational purpose. It was sort of couched as if this were actually in their interest, that, that this was helping to educate the public, this was helping conservation. And so it was legal to capture them right up until 1976. And that was the point at which it was no longer permitted to round up orcas from the Pacific Northwest. Southern resident orcas are considered sacred relatives to indigenous people uh, in the Lummi Nation and other uh, people of the Pacific Northwest. Were any tribal members consulted? Did they even have an awareness that this kind of hunting and capturing and selling of their relatives was going on? No, none at all. When I spoke to Raynell Morris, who is a matriarch of the Lummi Nation and 
was at the forefront of their efforts to bring Tokatai, who they refer to as Scully Chaktana, that is her Lactamish name, um, bring her home. Raynell was telling me that, no, the tribes had no knowledge at all. No one was consulting indigenous people at that time to let them know what they were doing with the orcas, that they were taking them out of the water and selling them to marine parks. So it wasn't until 2017 that a member of the Lummi Business Council actually learned that the orca at the Miami Seaquarium came from their home waters, was a wild-caught southern resident orca who had been living there for over half a century. Caitlin, Tokatai was sold for $20,000 to the Miami Seaquarium, and unlike many of the young orcas who were captured around the same time she was, Toki survived, and she grew to over 7,500 pounds and 22 feet long. What were her first few years of life in captivity like? So when Tokatai first arrived at the Miami Seaquarium, where she did come to be known publicly as Lolita, that was basically her, her stage name, her performance name. At that time, for the first 10 years she was there, she shared the whale bowl with Hugo, who was a fellow captured Southern resident orca. So that pool is small for one whale, and two whales shared it for 10 years. And they performed 20-minute shows multiple times per day. So they were in this tiny cramped space. You know, you're talking about animals that are evolutionarily designed to swim up to 100 miles a day, to dive hundreds of feet deeper than the 20-foot floor of this, of this tank. It was very small, you know, again, 80 feet by 35 feet with two full-grown orcas in there. These are animals that, that discern their surroundings and communicate with one another through echolocation. And in a tank like that, as it was described to me by, by uh, the scientists who work with orcas, basically it would be like the equivalent of a human being being in a small, like a solitary confinement cell where every surface is a mirror. So they are, they are auditory animals, and every sound that she would make that is an echolocation click would just come bouncing back at her immediately. We're going to listen to some tape from Deborah Giles, whom you spoke with, who's a research director at the conservation organization Wild Orca, who spoke about the effect of life in captivity on Tokatai's body. An echolocation click can travel miles. A call can travel tens of miles. And for Toki, she was in a bathtub. So let's talk about efforts to bring Tokatai home, because they began as early as 1995, when marine mammal researcher Ken Balcom announced a campaign to bring her home. It wasn't successful at the time. What were the kinds of barriers that Balcom ran into? So Balcom and then his, his brother, Howard Garrett, who is now the head of the Orkin Network, and he was the one who created the nonprofit that that took up the advocacy efforts for trying to bring Tokatai home back in the 90s. And he went to Miami himself to try to drum up support for this effort and to write letters and petition and get the public involved. And the main barrier was that there was just absolutely no impetus for the Sequarium to engage. They had an orca that was making them a lot of money. She was a main attraction. She was very popular. At that time, even though there were, of course, animal rights activists that were calling for her release, it hadn't yet reached this tipping point where it was 
really necessary for them to listen. So they very simply did not. And when I spoke with Howard about this, he talked about feeling like it was just a fortress wall is how he described it. And he could do whatever he wanted outside of it, but no matter how loud and how insistent they were. And they did draw some big names. You know, there were elected officials who got behind it. Elton John wrote a letter at the time saying that he wanted this whale to come back to sanctuary in her home waters, but there was just no movement from the Seaquarium at all. What was the public understanding of whale captivity at the time? I mean, I remember Free Willy coming out in the 90s. In a world where beauty is held captive. Miss your family. SeaWorld was popular back then. At Anheuser-Busch's SeaWorld Parks, the trust between our trainers and whales is built over time. What was the general attitude about orcas in captivity? And what led to those attitudes starting to shift and starting to have more of a recognition that this is the type of animal that just should not be in captivity? Right. So I think over time, public awareness began to change based on what we were learning about them, both in the wild through the research of people like Ken Balcom and through what people were observing of these captive orcas, including stories like Hugo, who bashed his head against the wall until he died. It began to become evident that these are animals that suffer when they're put into small contained environments and separated from their their natural ecosystem and separated from their families and from their communities, which are so vital to them. So as the research on that advanced, there did there did come to be a, a deeper understanding of the fact that these are incredibly intelligent, incredibly sophisticated animals with highly evolved brains and really profound social networks, and that doing this to them is you know, it it really creates an environment in which it is very difficult for them to thrive. They were trying to breed these whales. That's incredibly difficult. They were, you know, so you have these these females who are giving birth to calves who wind up dying. Um, so it just sort of started to become evident that this was um, that this was not an ideal situation for them. And then, yeah, you had movies like Free Willy come out, and there was. A lot of attention focused on Keiko, who was the real life star of that and was living in this, you know, dilapidated tank in, in Mexico. And so there were efforts on, you know, to focused on trying to get him out of there because, of course, it's very ironic to have this movie about a whale that deserves to be free when the actual star of that film is still living in really desperate conditions. And you had Blackfish. I mean, CNN uh, uh, produced documentary. These types of things I remember kind of being seminal moments in our evolving understanding of what it means to keep an orca in a tiny tank. Um, Tokatai's journey to come home began to pick up traction in 2017. That's when Raynell Morris, a matriarch of the Lummi Nation, spent six years trying to bring her relative. I mean, Toki is, as all Southern residents are considered relatives in the Lummi Nation. And Raynell says the tribe's sovereignty and treaty protection office began to investigate what was happening here. Um, how did learning about Tokatai's abduction impact Raynell personally? What did she say about that? She talked about just how absolutely devastating and heartbreaking it was to realize that this was, you know, this sacred 
this sacred creature who had been stolen, stolen from her family and stolen from her environment and put into this place where she didn't belong. And Raynell talked about how this touched on, you know, really, really deep, uh, traumatic pains in the indigenous community, because of course there is this legacy of native children being stolen from their tribes, from their families and put in American boarding schools where they were abused, where they died, where they were forbidden from being connected to their cultures and their heritage and their language and their food and all of these things that made them who they are. And so this felt like a, like a really painful reminder of that and an extension of that in a way, this idea that there was this sense of entitlement, that this relative could be taken and treated that way. And so when the tribe learned more about what had happened to her, they, they passed a motion um, making it a sacred obligation for them to bring her home. What other actions did the tribe take in an effort to try to bring Toki home? There was a lot of effort to draw public attention to this. There was a sacred totem that was made for her by the Lummi House of Tears carvers, which is now permanently uh, installed um, on San Juan Island in her honor. But that totem traveled across the country all the way to Miami and back, went on this journey that, that did draw a lot of attention to to the fact that this was now not just an animal rights issue, but an indigenous rights issue. And that had a lot of resonance at that time because it was something that pe- more people were starting to be aware of. You know, Raynell went to spend time with her. She would go pray and hold ceremony with the orca, began to build a relationship with her. And, you know, they just were trying to do everything they possibly could to garner more public attention and more support for bringing her back home. And that did begin to make some progress, but only again in terms of raising raising the profile and, and making Tokatai more known as as an animal that was living in this situation and a creature who was claimed as a sacred relative by an indigenous tribe. There still wasn't really a ton of movement in terms of this aquarium's participation until August of 2021. August of 2021 is significant because that is when the CEO of the Dolphin Company, Eduardo Albor, said he was intending to purchase the Miami Seaquarium. Albor is the head of this company that operates a ton of theme parks and resorts throughout Latin America. They feature swimming with dolphin experiences. So what changes for Tokatai after he purchases the Seaquarium, Caitlin? A couple of things were happening all at once. In August of 2021, he announced that he wanted to buy the Seaquarium. And then a month later, the USDA issued this horrifying scathing inspection report about her conditions there. And that suddenly opened up this possibility, this, you know, there's this promise of new ownership. There's this report making it all the more apparent that she's really suffering there. And a bunch of advocates kind of came together that included Raynell of Morris of the Lummi Nation, that included a conservationist named Pritam Singh, who founded Friends of Lolita, which later became Friends of Toki and um, Charles Vinnick of the Whale Sanctuary Project. And they were the ones who opened up this dialogue with Eduardo Albor. And they said, we really want to come in and help make her life there better, to offer her better care. We want an independent veterinarian to assess her health and well-being. And where in the past there has been this kind of impenetrable wall between marine parks and people who might be branded as activists, 
Albor was open to working with them, and they created this dialogue together so that after the sale was finalized, Friends of Toki was invited in, and they were able to come in and bring in independent veterinarians and begin becoming involved in her daily care in a way that improved the level of veterinary care and engagement that she was receiving there. When does this NFL owner come into the picture, Caitlin? What's the significance of the, the Colts billionaire owner? So you have Friends of Toki in the Miami Seaquarium after Albor has purchased it, and they're helping to improve her care there. But they don't have enough money to actually think about bringing her home to the Pacific Northwest. They are, they're providing better veterinary care. They're providing engagement. But the, uh, the prospect of actually returning her to a sanctuary in the Salish Sea is not really on the table because that's an incredibly expensive endeavor. However, in January of this year... Charles Vinnick of the Whale Sanctuary Project got on the phone with Jim Ursay, and he's the owner of the of the Indianapolis Colts. And he had seen Tokatai perform when he was a 12-year-old boy, soon after she came to the Miami Seaquarium long ago in the early 1970s, and he never forgot her. And he has always been someone who's been very interested in conservation and in animals and in whales in particular. And so when he learned about her circumstances, he told Vinnick that he wanted to be involved in helping to bring her back. Back home. I know Lolita wants to get to free waters. I don't care what anyone says. She wants, she, she's lived this long to have this opportunity. And my only mission is I'm a three-year-old boy that sees a whale that he loves that wants to help this whale get free. Hmm. So in March, an announcement is made. In 18 to 24 months, Tokatai was going to leave the Miami Seaquarium for a sea sanctuary in the Salish Sea. What was the plan for Tokatai's life post-Seaquarium, that, that March of 2023 when the announcement was made? This is really important because I think there were a lot of misunderstandings about it. I think a lot of people kind of had this free willy idea that she was just going to go swimming off into the sunset with her family and you know with with the whale who some people believe is her mother there was this idea of this beautiful family reunion that would happen for her and the reality is more complex and more poignant really because it reflects the lingering impact of our human meddling which is that she after having lived in captivity for all these decades she'd been on antibiotics almost her whole life. This is a whale who had chronic infections, the source of which was never conclusively determined. Her wild family, meanwhile, the Southern residents are endangered. They are threatened with a lack of food, with, you know, with pollution. They're dealing with, they're dealing already with all of these threats to their own survival. It simply was not ever viable to introduce a whale who might get them sick, who where there's not necessarily enough food to support another adult like that, un, uncertain whether or not she would know how to kind of reacclimate to life in the wild. Uh, there was concern about how her presence there might disrupt their behavior. So the plan was for this 10-acre netted sea sanctuary to be a place where she would be in her home waters and have a far more enriching and natural environment for her 
there was no question that her team felt that her life would be monumentally better there, but she would still be receiving veterinary care. She would still have caregivers tending to her 24-7 for the rest of her life, and she was going to be in a location where they had determined that no indication of her presence there could possibly reach her family. They wouldn't hear her. They wouldn't be able to detect her. And that was necessary to protect both parties, really. You spoke with two trainers who had cared for Tokatai for years and who spent final moments with Tokatai. What did they say about that experience and and what Tokatai was doing there in the final moments? I spoke with a number of people who were present with her in the water when she was actually in her final decline on Friday, August 18th. And, you know, their description of those final hours with her is just so, so powerful and so poignant. And it's just really overwhelming when an animal of that magnitude is reaching the end of their time. And, you know, there came a moment where everyone there was describing a particular moment that really resonated with them as kind of the point at which they realized that they didn't think she was going to make it. And this was, this was after they'd been giving her fluids and giving her medications and they, they knew already that her kidneys were failing, but she sort of turned almost upside down and sank toward the bottom of the pool. And all of these trainers dove in and started trying to lift her, to lift this, you know, 7,500 pound animal back up and right her and pull her dorsal up so that she could get back up to the surface. And they did it, they guided her up. And at that point they knew that they needed to put her into her stretcher. And this is just so, I mean, it's just really kind of overwhelming to think about, but this is a stretcher that they had been training her to be used to because it was the one that was going to lift her out of the tank when it was time for her to go home and be free. And so the first time she ever was in it, fully in it, was as she was dying. So they guided her into this stretcher. And, um, you know, they all stayed very close to her. Sarah Onan was a trainer who had worked with her um, longer than just about anyone. She'd been with her for over 20 years and she was holding her face in her hands. And Sarah told me that, um, you know, she'd been present when other cetaceans had died over the years. And she knew when an animal's body begins to shut down, they have these spasmic movements. They can thrash, they can bite without meaning to. And so she knew it was not without risk, frankly, to be close to Tokatai's face. But she loved this whale for decades, and so she wasn't going to go anywhere. So she stayed with her. Um, I also spoke with Marcia Henton Davis, who similarly had worked with her in the 80s and had come back to rejoin the care team that was preparing her to go back home. And Marcia told me that she had always loved to put her hand on Tokatai's side to feel her heartbeat because it was just this incredibly powerful rhythm. And so she had her hand there by her pectoral fin and felt her heartbeat for the last time. Everyone, you know, when I had these conversations with the people who were with her, no one could really kind of revisit that moment without without weeping. I, I think it was just an incredibly overwhelming thing for them to be present as she left and... Um, that she had come so close and that they were trying so hard and that it they just it couldn't happen in time I think is something that was really really painful for all of them but they also all told me that um they took some solace in the fact that they felt like they had given her 
the best last year of her life, you know, that at the time she left, she was in fact surrounded by people who without question, you know, deeply loved her and were fighting very hard for her. So I think they hope she knew that. And what did those people that you got to know by reporting on Tokatai and who became part of her orbit were part of her team, either fighting to bring her back or just fighting to keep her healthy at the Seaquarium? What did they say about her legacy? I mean, I was struck by Marcia Henton Davis, the trainer, telling you that she believes Toki is going to change the world. What did she mean by that? Yeah, a lot of people said that. I think a lot of people believe that. I mean, Tokatai had become a global phenomenon. There are these groups dedicated to her online that have tens of thousands of people in them. She is she is known, and people were following her story from afar, especially once it was announced that she was going home. You have this massive worldwide investment in, in this journey being completed. And so I think there was a sense that not only does she draw this incredible attention to the plight of the 3,000 cetaceans that remain in captivity, she also forces us to confront this legacy that we have, our relationship with her species, and to think more deeply about where we go from here and how we relate to these creatures that are just so much more intelligent and sophisticated and evolved than we realized they were at the time that we were pulling them out of the water all those decades ago. Because she is a member of the only population of orca that is endangered, she also drew all of this attention to the to the challenges that the southern residents are facing and how dire it is that their Chinook salmon be restored to the Salish Sea, that they be spared the stress of boat traffic, that we pay attention to the pollutants that are infiltrating their environment that are resulting in them dying too young and losing pregnancy after pregnancy, that their population has not been able to rebound and still hasn't recovered from the capture era. Toki, this one animal, became this symbol of all of this and, and of indigenous rights. What do we owe these tribes that we stole from, that we showed no regard at all, that we didn't even consult with them when we were, when we were taking these animals that are viewed as sacred relatives to them? She really kind of crossed all of these different these different boundaries and and she tells so many different stories with her one life and so i think the people who cared for her and fought so hard for her really believe that in some ways that is like that is her purpose that is her legacy that is the meaning that can be drawn from from the tragedy of her loss that that she can help us see more clearly what we've done and what we have to do the most recent census shows that there are just 75 southern resident orcas still living in the Puget Sound. And Caitlin, you wrote about this incredible phenomenon of the three pods of the southern residents gathering um, in Toki's final hours. And there's almost something just mystical about what occurred. Can you tell me what happened and just to describe it for people so they know uh, what was going on when, when Toki was getting ready to die. The first thing to know is that th- this is a phenomenon that is unique to the Southern residents. It's something that makes them singular and really special. And that is that they are a population where every single whale in their in their group sometimes comes together. And that's called a superpod. 
there's just not many other animal populations where that happens, where every single member of a population is together all at once. They're socializing. They know one another. There's this intense social connection between them. Anecdotally, this has been observed to occur around occasions of social significance to the whales, such as the birth of an orca or the death of an orca. So if you know this about them, that this is something they do and that it seems to be something that is really significant to them, then when you hear about what happened as Tokatai was dying, yeah, it's just this thing that really, really resonated so powerfully with every single person I spoke to who was in her orbit. As she was really beginning to decline the day before she died, when her health was really was really starting to fade, members of all three pods of the Southern residents suddenly came charging in from the West and they arrived in the Harrow Strait off the West shore of San Juan Island in the waters where Tokatai was most likely born. And they hadn't been there for over a year together. And they all came in and they were socializing and fin slapping and breaching and communicating just this incredible amount of socializing going on. And the people who were watching this at the time were utterly amazed, but they didn't realize yet that it was happening as Tokatai was dying. And then the smaller group stayed there through the day when she died. And that group included the whale known as Ocean Sun, who's almost 100 years old, the oldest living orca, and is the only orca who was alive during the capture era and the one who would remember Tokatai. And they stayed there the whole day that she was dying. So that's just, you know, do we know for sure what they were doing? Of course we can't know, but everyone I spoke with was just so moved by that and really affected by, yeah, the kind of the cosmic mystery of it that we just, we can't know what they know, but the timing of that, the synchronicity of it was so powerful. And our limited knowledge is, you know, part of this, right? We're only starting to understand the way that whales are able to communicate and how their world works. And I just think it was a beautiful piece, a beautiful, uh, you know, moment to kind of reflect on that and how little we do know. I really recommend everybody go check out Caitlin's story, The Call of Tokatai at the Washington Post and all of the incredible visuals and images, archival work, um, everything that your visuals team did is, is really amazing. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Soundside. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.